The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to continue in the study of trials. You know, I was talking with Shan earlier. We were just joking around. We're fine. We're just joking about sitting. But it is interesting to see how little disruptions really cause us to think um, a little bit cockeyed and a little, little difference, you know, walking into a situation we're not used to. That actually is a great little illustration for on a micro level of what all of us deal with on a macro level. A man does not know what a day brings forth. Every day we wake up, we think we know what the world is going to be like, and yet God throws us curveballs not to mess with us for his glory and for our good. Let me read just the first five verses that will set the context as we continue studying verses three through five. Paul says, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We entitled this little series that we're in, Finding Hope in a Sea of Difficulty. All of us wake up in a sea of difficulty that is sometimes articulated for us and sometimes not. The world does not shape up exactly as we would hope and intend every day, and that is by God's perfect design. One of the parts of language that makes us think, or rather not think, I should say, Probably more than any other part of the English language is the use of the oxymoron, right? You know what an oxymoron is? Two words that come together that seem not to go together but express thought. For example, the Great Depression. Jumbo, are you talking about me? Jumbo shrimp. I love this. Clearly confused. Somewhat addictive. This is fun. Act Naturally, beautifully painful, painfully beautiful, deafening silence, pretty ugly, a definite maybe, your only choice, alone, together, virtual reality, random order, isn't that a nice one? I love this is one of my favorites. Original copy. (laughs) Disgustingly delicious. I saw that on a menu. Awfully good. Small crowd. Dark light. Light darkness. I like this one. Open secret. Passive aggressive. Appear invisible. Goodbye reception. That's kind of interesting. 
growing smaller, least favorite, true myth, unpopular celebrity, noticeable absence, quiet presence, I like this, death benefits. Probably my favorite oxymoron of all time, though, is this, non-working mother just doesn't equate, does it? When you look at those oxymorons, those communicate something, they're very interesting, but one of the things that's most interesting theological, and I think the most notable theological oxymoron is something that really shouldn't be oxymoronic to a believer at all. Here it is, ready? Joyful trial. Joyful trial. Yet that's exactly the emphasis of Scripture about a Christian's experience with difficulty. We are to experience and engage and encounter trials joyfully. We see that in our passage today. Now let's get a little uh, running start. The first four chapters as we studied over the last year are all about God's justifying work in us by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby He takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and gives or imputes or credits or puts into our account his purity, his perfection, his righteousness while taking our sin and our sinfulness and crediting it to Jesus on the cross and exchanges those whereby he makes us by declaration exactly the only way we can be and go to heaven, which is perfect. But we can't get there by our own perfection, our own righteousness, He gives us Christ, and we can't get there with our sin, and Christ takes that away by his death and proves it all by his resurrection. For four chapters, Paul has been explaining and outlining that. How can a sinful man be made righteous before a holy God? That's the question that's been asked and answered in the first four chapters. The result is chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, made right by God through the means of faith, Here's the great conclusion. We have peace with God. No longer are we enemies with God. No longer are we uh, at odds with God or in trouble with God. We now, because of Christ, because of his work, we have peace with God. E.J. Forrester writes this. The characteristic feature of our position is not the obliteration of our past offenses. It sounds like he's wrong, but listen to the full sentence. The characteristic feature of our position, our justification, is not the obliteration of our past offenses, you can put in parentheses, alone. Rather, it's the withdrawal of divine wrath, end quote. What he's saying is God, because of his son's death and sacrifice on behalf of those who believe in his precious work, is no longer wrathful and no longer angry with us. So we have peace with God. Now, those climaxes, um, all in those first two verses of chapter five, where Paul turns the key and begins talking about application. So what? So we're justified by grace through faith. So what? Well, the first so what is we have peace with God. Christ and his death provide peace with, peace from God, and the hope of heaven. It gives the believer unspeakable hope. But this is not to say what could easily be assumed. Since we have peace with our greatest adversary, God himself, since that relationship is now stayed and convicted by the 
sacrificial atonement of another executed and we have peace with God. Since that's the case, shouldn't we have an easy life? Shouldn't we have peace now? Shouldn't we have a cessation from trouble? Paul says that a person being justified by grace through faith is not now entering into a road, a path, carpeted with ease and comfort. The path on which a believer walks has thorn bushes that cross the way. You ever walked on a path and a thorn bush has, um, has grown with its, with its uh, sticker uh, extensions across the, the path and you run into it and it grabs you and the more you try to get away from it, the more it grabs you? That's a good description of the path that God has chosen for a believer. But that's only the path in this world. Christians are not exempt from anguish, exempt from grief, Distrust, discontentment, or heartache. All of these responses of the heart and law of, to loss and pain are, don't, don't go away when you become a Christian. You might actually say that they intensify because we're a Christian. The Greek word, as we've looked at over and over uh, for last week and this week, we'll, we'll consider more for tribulations is the word thlipsis. It means to be under pressure. As we talked about last week, it's, it's used of squeezing grapes to extract juice, pressing on olives to, to extract their oil. The ESV uh, calls them sufferings. The NIV calls these sufferings. The New American Standard translates this word tribulations. It brings up the reality that most Christians believe a horrific myth, which is simply this. Becoming a Christian means that life is going to get easier and better and troubles and difficulties will diminish and go away. You know, there's that, when I was in college, I, I memorized the four spiritual laws. Remember that, that uh, you want to use for evangelism? The first spiritual law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not exactly the first spiritual law. The first spiritual law is this, God loves you and has a horrible plan for your life unless you repent, and then it might get worse until you go to heaven. In other words, I don't offer in the gospel a cessation from all problems. We offer in the gospel the cessation of the wrath of God toward our greatest problem, which is sin. Paul's not promoting, though, however, we have to remember this, Christian masochism. It enjoys being hurt, nor is he encouraging the Christian to be a stoic that says, just grin and bear it. The three verses before us instruct us that a believer can actually find joy in the midst of our tribulation and suffering. And are you ready for this? Find joy because of our suffering, so long as we know what the suffering is going to cause. Paul informs us that suffering has positive results, has fruit that benefits us, and that these results make all the difference between how a Christian endures suffering and how the unbeliever does. I, I told you last week, sitting in the, the waiting room of an intensive uh, care unit with a group of believers and watching unbelievers who are in the same intensive care waiting room with unbelieving relatives and friends down the hallway, and the response could not have been more stark. We don't grieve as those without hope. We don't suffer as those without hope. We don't interpret life as those without 
hope. Now, just to review, we began last week talking about a Christian's response to suffering. And we're looking at three distinctives in difficult circumstances. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. What makes us process suffering, tribulation, troubles, trials, difficulties? What makes a Christian look at it differently than would an unbeliever? And the first is that growth in a a Christian's life is really counterintuitive. It's growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. We think about things differently, actually the opposite than an unbeliever would. Verse 3 Not only this, we exult in our tribulations. The first exclamation point is not only this. What is he referencing when he says not only this? There are two words that that are translated exult. Same word in the Greek at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 2. We exult in the hope of glory. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulation. Now that sounds odd enough. It's even more traumatic when you understand what he means by exult. Kalkaomai. Rejoice in, glory, boast, brag, jump up and down, ecstatic about. Remember, exult is a different word than exalt. Exalt means to lift up, exalt means to joy in, rejoice in. Now, this is the proverbial nails on the chalkboard of Christian theology. You mean we exult, we joy in, we, o- we over uh, uh, exude our emotional response in tribulations? Who signed up for this? He builds that bridge between exulting in heaven and exulting in trials. We talked about this last week. Paul, James says the same thing Consi- more, more graphically. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when you encounter. Consider it all joy when bad things happen? What does that mean? It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of the world's reflex to suffering. And we said last week, and we just jumped into one word in this next point, that can only come to bear in your life if you have knowledge about something, if you know something, which brings us secondly to the second Christian distinctive in difficult circumstances, awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. God is doing things. God is working things in our life that we would not know from just looking at the outside of trouble. Are we aware of these invisible processes? John Piper says, God is doing 10,000 things in every little minor thing, and to recognize some of those things will give us perspective. He says, exult in our tribulations, and then that, that word I hope you circled, underlined, starred, whatever you do, highlighted, knowing. We exult in our tribulations, Knowing. That word is really a a Cape Canaveral for where is your theology? It launches us into understanding that God is doing things that we don't see from this world. Our faith doesn't reveal the sight of what God's doing. We know things. James tells us, uh, consider all joy, my brethren, knowing that the testing of your faith produces these things. 
What do we know? Last week I told you my little process that, that, that I've used for counseling myself, for counseling others. When something difficult happens with a believer, we ask ourselves three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? If, if we don't get to what we know and what we believe, we'll never control how we think, which will give us control of how we feel. What do we know? Paul instructs us here on what we're to know in the midst of a tribulation. He outlines a process here that occurs in a believer during troubling circumstances. And when you're in a troubling circumstance, when you're in persecution, that is the primary target of this, when you're being persecuted, uh, suffering because of your faith, it's so important to pull the car over, take a deep breath, and say, what do I know that God is doing in the midst of this? First, he gives us the first part of this tribulation, first part of this process. Know, first of all, that tribulation brings about perseverance. That's exactly what it says. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Earlier, he talked about tribulations, plural. Now he takes the concept tribulation as a concept and says, this brings about perseverance. This simple fact is this, tribulations, sufferings themselves bring the ability to endure tribulations and sufferings. You say, well, that's kind of doublespeak. All of us know how a muscle works. A muscle grows lethargic. A muscle atrophies without use. Faith works very much like a muscle, and without use, it atrophies. And the greatest way to remember where our anchor is in heaven and that our faith is sustained by God on this planet is when it's exercised. How is faith exercised? And the answer to that is when we have to use it. Challenge is when things are going well, we're not forced into using the activity of faith like when things go badly. It's an interesting word here, this word perseverance or endurance. It's the word hupomone. And it literally means to remain underneath pressure. Isn't it interesting that the word for trial is pressure and the word for endurance is to remain underneath pressure? It's not by accident. How can we remain under pressure? You know what makes us squirm out from under the pressure of a trial? You know what makes us do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 10, verse 13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is, what's the word? common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. This phrase should never be part of a Christian's vocabulary. I can't take this. God has never seen you in a circumstance, seen me in a circumstance as bad as it can be, as painful as it can be, as awful as we can interpret. He's never seen us in that and said, oh no, I gave them too much. He's never elbowed the angels and said, we, we, we overdid it here. Let's back some of that off. Not only that, no man and no woman's circumstance is ever unique to us. None of us can ever say, this is worse than anyone else has ever endured. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common. And no temptation is overtaking you as a believer that will last forever. Puritan John Flavel, who, by the way, lost two wives, was thrown into prison, lost his church as a Puritan, says this, affliction is a pill which being wrapped up in patience and quiet submission 
may be easily swallowed. He goes on, to be free from affliction would be no benefit to believers. Think about that. To be free from affliction would be no benefit to believers who receive so many benefits by it. If afflictions be the way through which you must come to God, then never be discouraged at affliction, troubles, and afflictions, because afflictions are of great use to God. End quote. What he's saying is that we should never be in a real hurry to get out from under troubles and suffering and affliction. Doesn't that just sound beyond uh, reason? Isn't that counterintuitive? Who says stay in it and bear under it? Again, one of our greatest misunderstandings is that our theology is messed up. We think that bad things are bad. We really think that suffering is awful. We really think that trials and Physical pains, emotional pains, suffering, persecution under the gospel. We really think that's not good. That's not from God. That, that must go away for God to be glorified and for me to enjoy life. Yet you look at the testimony of Scripture. All the men of God who suffered, the women of God who suffered. Look at the testimony of the church in the history of the church. Those who have suffered most have brought God incredible glory. You know what one of the reasons that Christians die is? There's a lot of reasons that Christians die because we, the wages of sin is death. We all die because of our sin. But one of the reasons that Christians die is that God eventually deems this person's death will bring me more glory than their continued life. And that's good. If he's got our death sewn up for our good and his glory, what are we really concerned about here on earth? Now, that doesn't give us the right not to be responsible. doesn't give us the right to not be obedient. But it does make us look at our sufferings way different than anyone else. How and why? Because we stick in there. We persevere under it. We don't try to crawl off of his table thinking this is the only, I'm the only person who's ever suffered this way. But it goes more. You can't stop with one. The second part of that process is that perseverance produces character. Tribulations produce endurance. Bearing up under it and and remaining under trial now produces character, the next phrase says. Dokime. Very interesting Greek word. It comes from testing something and having it proven by pressure. Molding something, shaping something, changing something. Are you aware, are you willing to submit to the process when we suffer, when trouble and difficulties come, that God is using that pressure to change us? Sand us, to hone us. We know the the greater explanation behind the curtain of God's Uh, uh, troubles and trials that he sends us is very clearly given to us in James chapter 1. You know it well. I referenced it earlier. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Here's our word again. Knowing that the testing of your faith. Now we find something. When God sends trials and troubles that tests our faith and it produces endurance. The same word. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the character that Paul is talking about. Just a little footnote. James says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom about what going through the trial, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, 
and will give him to, be given to him. God is a ready resource in times of trial and trouble. It produces character. Now, don't miss this. Character in the Bible, character in Scripture is all about moral excellence, becoming more like Christ and less like the world. Watch this. If trials are intended to perfect our character, then trials are also equally administered by God to reveal our sinfulness and our sin. It could be distrust. It could be anger. It could be distrust, anxiety, anything. So in a trial, opposite of what most people think, where they think, well, let's get this trial out of the way. Let's diminish the pressure. Let's make sure they're comfortable it's very likely that God uses a trial and a trouble and a suffering and a difficulty in our life to reveal to us and in our hearts a sin, a disposition for sin. Unless you think ever, well, that person is too sweet to ever go through a trial. No, no. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. D.A. Carson, all we have to do is live long enough and we will experience trouble and trial and suffering. Sometimes you don't have to live very long. They are intended by God for the revelation of our sin so that we can repent and our character is improved. Now, do you have your seatbelt on for a minute? If God uses trials to perfect us and the trial that we're in doesn't perfect us, doesn't mature us, he will repeat the test, will he not? He'll come out of our heart from a different angle, not because he's mean, but because he loves us and he wants to see our sin weaned from our affections. I, I just sometimes find myself in the middle of a trial and think, I, I, wanna, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> Let me do it right this first time. Let's make sure that we're seeing, God, what are you doing? In this? Often in a trial we think, you know, uh, what is God doing? We look at providence. Look, instead of looking at, you know, why is this happening on a providential level, we should first look at this. Why is this happening to reveal sin in my life I can repent of? Repent therefore in return, Acts 3.19, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You want to be happy? You want to be holy? Find a sin to repent of and times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. But it's not there. Endurance produces character. Well, tribulations produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Now, character, watch this. Thirdly, produces hope. You say, what? How does a trial end up in hope? Now, now let me just illustrate this for you visually, if I can. We enter, God gives us tribulation and trials that we can produce endurance so that we know how to last underneath the pressure. That pressure then works on our character so we become more like him. That character then gives us hope. What does the text say? Hope does not disappoint. When are we most disappointed? Full circle, in trials. You see the sufficiency of God in, in this amazing process? Full circle. What we need most in a trial is Hope and a lack of disappointment that comes actually through the proper processing of the trial, which is anchored in our theological disposition of knowing not only just what God is doing, but knowing that God is doing something in our trials. 
God has never forgotten you in a series of trials or troubles. God has never looked away. God has never abandoned you. But part of his presence is to make us like himself. Hope, which comes from character, is rooted in the hope of glory. This whole context here is the hope of heaven. Circles amazing from trials all the way back to hope, which does not, look at the text, which does not disappoint. So how do we endure trials differently than others? Well, it's growth and a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. We think differently than the world because we know God's doing things because, number two, we have awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. And by the way, we have care groups, we have friendships, we have discussions, we have Sunday school classes, we have uh, just relationships, fellowship in, in, in the church and outside that should be anchored in this process. So that when a person is in trouble and in trial, our first response to each other should not be, how can we get you out of this? But how can you become more godly because of this? That's the most loving thing to do. This brings us thirdly to a Christian's distinctive response. Comfort from the divine supply for our difficulties. God has not left us alone. We receive distinctively comfort from God, from the divine supply for our difficulties. He says, we have hope that does not disappoint. Why? Look at verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out. Stop right there, love. Notice what happened in these five verses. We talked about faith in the first two verses. In verses 3 and 4, we talked about Hope, which leads to, thirdly, love. Does that sound like a familiar triad in the scripture of faith, hope, love? The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. who was given to us. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was in his greatest trials. One commentator says that His soul was crucified at Gethsemane long before his body was crucified on Calvary. We know that the abandonment of God, the beginning of his payment for our sins happened there when when he says, ultimately, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did that begin? In the garden when he said, Father, take this away. Father, take this away. Father, take this away. And God said, no, you'll drink this cup. Zechariah says it's the cup of his wrath. I find it interesting that in that moment when Jesus was at his greatest trial, experiencing his greatest trouble, during his greatest affliction, God sent an angel to minister to him. In our greatest troubles and and trials, God doesn't send angels. Look at this text. He sends the Holy Spirit. He himself comes. When we suffer, he comes personally. Now, Paul introduces the theme of the love of God that he's going to come back to in verses 6 through 11. We won't take too much time uh, to dial into this uh, specifically because those verses deal with it directly. A Christian does not seek out tribulation and trouble. Instead, you respond to it right when it comes because we know that it involves God's love. Look at what the text says. 
The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Why do you say that? I think because the thing we question most in our trouble as a Christian is, does God still love me? Is God still in a favorable disposition toward me? Isn't this supposed to not happen to me? He says, no, in the midst of that trial, the love of God has been poured out. It's not visible always. Within our hearts, it's internal. Through the Holy Spirit, the permanent abiding presence of God, who was given to us. He remains with us. Now, I went through a cycle. Uh, when I was in high school, I was given the little uh, uh, bookmark when I graduated from our pastor. Uh, I think it's called Footprints. Is that what the old poem? Remember where it says, you know, I was in my, I don't know, paraphrasing. You know, there were two footprints going in the sand. Then there was one, where are you, God? And then it says, well, I was carrying you. And I used to think, oh, that's cheesy. Until I got older. <laughs> I said, you know what, that's not so cheesy anymore. That's the way it works. You are never, ever, as a believer, in a present trouble or moment where God is not there with you. What did Jesus say? I will never leave you or forsake you. What did he say in John 16? I will not leave you as orphans. Do you believe? Do you really believe in your troubles that God is still around? Even if you don't see him or feel him? Do you believe in his invisible providence? And do you believe, do you have that little word etched in your soul, knowing what do you know when you have trouble? Does what you know, does your theology minister to you then? Do you have a theology for suffering sufficient to bear the weight of the pressure that the trial brings upon you? I go back to what we said last week. Job and Abraham were afflicted with trials and suffering from God, remember? God did that. God tested Abraham. God tested Job. And they had no idea what was going on. We are not like that. We, when we see trials and troubles, we can know uh, God's in this. God is behind this. Why? Because this world is not all there is. Christians' greatest struggle, honestly, is over-realized eschatology. You know what that means? Eschatology, the future hope of glory in heaven. We over-realize that now. We think all that is in heaven should really be experienced now in this present age, in this present world. And it doesn't. Now, you can go with under-realized eschatology where you never think of heaven. That's the other extreme. But I think our extreme is thinking, well, why is this happening to me? That famous book for junior hires, If God Loves Me, Why Can I Get My Locker Open? You can't get your locker open because he loves you. He's going to perfect your character through that trial. This brings us back to heaven, hope in heaven. Trials are intended to loosen the grip that we have on this world. And make no mistake, you and I have clawed talons gripping into this world so tightly that the thought of leaving it is a bad thought. Uh, this last week, I was in California teaching a class, and I met with some, 
some precious folks who are making the, the unbelievably painful decision of whether or not to take their, their mother and this man's wife off of life support who's had a stroke, severe stroke, an aneurysm, and uh, uh, has had no um, measurable response. So we're talking through that. We've got the family together. I've been their pastor for years. They said, we want to talk to you when you're out here. So we got together and talked. What do you say? I'm getting ready for that meeting thinking, what? what's my fastball? I, what do you say there? So I listened for a long time. And having studied this passage, the only thing I could tell them is, let's start with this. Dying for a Christian is not bad. Right? Right? I mean, if that's the end game, and the worst the world can give us is death, and that's covered, then you back up and say, hang on, there's some perspective that can be applied here. For the believer, heaven is a time and place where we'll enjoy the absence of evil, absence of suffering, finally then and there. The realities of heaven, the realities of hell actually should bring suffering and evil into sharp focus. I love the sentence that was a life changer for me in Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. He says this, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. Edward says, when I experience pain, I remember that this is nothing like the pains of hell that those unbelievers will experience for all eternity. For the Christian, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, this is the closest that they will ever come to heaven. God uses troubles in our lives that culminate in the inevitability of our own deaths so that we refocus our hearts on heaven. I was talking with some of the men at one of our men's meetings a couple weeks ago and gave one of my favorite quotes from Morris Roberts. So powerful. He says this, the degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends on his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. I love that picture. Does the thought of God and his realities come between me and that which makes me anxious and that which gives me trouble? Everything in this passage comes back to one word. Knowing. Do you know this? Can you exult in tribulations knowing? which is all why we feed our minds theological truth that will sustain us. And remember this. Listen, I was talking to one of my sons about this. You will have quiet times. You will read your Bibles on, on, and Bible on days when you will think, I don't know what that had to do with anything. You ever done that? I've had that. Well, I'm glad that happened. And Samuel, good for them. Days, weeks, months pass by in a... God uses that in your heart later. So the question is, do we have a theology for suffering? Yes, but are we building a theology for trouble and suffering? If you read the Bible, things didn't always go well for all those who loved the Lord. Now, some things went really well for some people who did. 
And Ecclesiastes says that's actually the harder challenge than when things are going bad. Perfectly brings us into celebrating the Lord's table, right? In the Lord's table, we see the payment that secures our eternal happiness. In the Lord's table, we see the perspective that we can have that will give us a cessation from anxiety and peace experientially in the midst of a trial. Father, we are humbled that you've given us the truth that we can know so that when trials come, we don't have to guess. Oh, you're gracious. Oh, you're kind. You're so perfectly informative in your word. You have not left us to our own devices and not left us to our own interpretation, but you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of the precious realities of your son. We come now to your table, Lord, and we we need grace. Grace to remember, grace to evaluate. So as we celebrate now, change our minds because of your truth. Change our hearts because of your word. And give us a vivid memory of a dying Savior whose love for us drove him to Calvary. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.